10, you know, seven kids have been killed in a national park in an avalanche. I, I really don't know what this means, uh, but I know it means something. So let's pay attention to this. It's not just a tool within our books. It's kind of the, the big tool, the, the big thing that holds them all together and that uh, really helps us with our mission of describing, categorizing, and classifying terrain as it relates to avalanche hazard. This is Grant Statham. This is John Sykes. And this is Andy Sovic, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. On today's show, Caleb talks to not one, but three inspiring guests from the avalanche world, Grant Statham, John Sykes, and Andy Sovic. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Our goal is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Thanks for tuning in, and now let's welcome Caleb Merrill as he kicks off the conversation with our first guest, Grant Statham, a seasoned mountain guide, climber, and avalanche forecaster based in Canmore, Alberta. Grant, thanks for swinging by the show tonight. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Caleb. Glad to be here and glad to hear your voice uh, in person. All right. So Grant lives in Canmore, Alberta, and he's a visitor safety specialist for Parks Canada. He works in the Banff, Yoho, and Kootenai National Parks. His work involves public avalanche forecasting, highway avalanche control, and search and rescue operations. It's a busy job, I'm sure, Grant. Grant's a ACMG IFMGA guide. He's an avid rock, ice, and alpine climber and has ski guided for numerous heli and cat ski operations in Canada. He's an avalanche risk consultant for both governmental and private sectors and is an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. He's the creator and author of the Avalanche Terrain Exposure Scale and Conceptual Model of Avalanche Hazard, some of the modern seminal work in uh, discussing avalanche hazard for our industry. Grant, I'm sure I missed some things there. You m- mind filling in any blanks? You want to do that? I think you pretty much covered it. Yeah, it's a bit of a list, but that's what happens as you get older. Yeah. Good intro. Thanks. Yeah, no doubt. It's, uh, it's obvious that you have a strong passion um, for furthering our understanding of avalanches and how to communicate avalanche risk to the public. Um, if you want to hear more about Grant's background and career, you can check out an episode that Dom Baker hosted back on episode 535, where he does a full interview with Grant. Um, of course, this interview is uh, one part of a three-part interview series on this episode, uh, really focusing in on the avalanche train exposure scale. And there's no better person to have on the show to talk about that than Grant. Um I'm going to give just a brief history of where the avalanche terrain exposure scale came from, and then I'm sure Grant can fill in some background. 
Um, but back in the winter of 2002, 2003, uh, Canada was struck especially hard in regard to avalanche fatalities. I believe it was the, the most avalanche fatalities on record in Canada. Is that right, Grant? Uh, yeah, since 1910 anyway. Yeah. yeah. Right. So on February 1st, 2003, one of these tragic avalanche accidents happened in the Connaught Creek drainage of Rogers Pass, which is in British Columbia's Glacier National Park. A massive D4 avalanche buried 17 people. 14 of them were high school students and three of them were teachers. They were all from a Calgary school's outdoor education program. 10 people survived and tragically seven students died from the burial in that avalanche. Um, Grant, where were you that day? And what do you remember? What do you recall from, from hearing about this? What, what thoughts went through your head when this happened? Uh, I was at Boulder Hut in the Southern Purcells, just wrapping up an avalanche course. It was, um, was the last day actually we we're getting ready to fly out, kind of doing the debrief with everybody and we're packing our stuff up. And then I, we got this news and uh, I was stunned actually, you know, we were only 10 days following a, uh, similarly tragic accident uh, in the Selkirks just, you know, 10 days earlier. So it was a shock. So I remember gathering the group and kind of talking about what had happened and basically saying, you know, 10, you know, seven kids have been killed in a national park in an avalanche. I, I really don't know what this means, uh, but I know it means something. So let's pay attention to this. And yeah, it was a kind of a shocking bit of news. Mm. Super tragic event. So as a result, the Parks Canada public, there was a Parks Canada public safety review that happened after that. Um, I, I believe with some some outside uh, perspective on that, and from that report, some consultants made 36 recommendations to the visitor safety program for Parks Canada, um, specifically around communication of avalanche hazard. As a result of that, a job posting was flown for somebody to implement these recommendations. And you ultimately got the job. Do I have that correct? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it. That's what happened. <laughs> um, so one of your projects was to classify avalanche terrain. And so, you know, I sometimes I think about this as like you're not going to jump on a rock climb without noting without knowing what rating that climb is. You're not going to set out on a river expedition without knowing what classification of rapids you might encounter. And so um, it makes perfect sense to me that you're not going to go out on a ski tour or an ice climb or just a backcountry walkabout without knowing what terrain classification is around you. Um, so how, how did you approach this challenge? What was the, what was your goal when you took this job in relation to classifying avalanche terrain for Parks Canada? Well, it was an interesting start to it because um, like that, that actually developing terrain classification was not one of those 36 recommendations. And so I, uh, you know, in preparation for that job, I studied those uh, recommendations in detail. And you could kind of see through all of them a theme where like if you had a terrain classification system, it would really help. You know, along the lines of what you just described around, you know, whitewater or rock climbing, you could see that there's a real gap there. P people needed to know about the seriousness of the terrain like before they got there. And we had no system for it. So I pitched that idea uh, during the interview and, and then I got the job. So then I there I was like, now I got to do it, which was um, 
it was interesting. You know, it's like many things. You just you say you're going to do it because you know it's a good idea. Like that was, in my mind, no question. Just what you said, like, we need this. How we're going to do it, I really don't know. But I got a great team of people here at that time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sharp people working in Parks Canada's public safety program at that time. A lot of my mentors and people that were older than me at the time. So I, I just turned to them and, and started throwing ideas around and we just started working on it. So, you know, just... It, I knew when I started it that it wasn't going to, you know, obviously it was going to look very different when it was finished. But so I started out with, uh, you know, the simple things that we all familiar with, like a ski area with a green circle and a blue square and a black diamond. And um, then tried to throw some really basic definitions by them. So, you know, I think we also started with uh, a non-avalanche terrain as well. The very first draft had four levels to it. It had non-avalanche terrain, uh, class one, class two and class three. Uh, we tried to copy the, you know, the icons used at ski areas. I was also looking for mountain bike trails. I remember going on a trip to Moab to ride my bike for a couple of weeks while that was all happening. And I was, I was grabbing onto everything. You know, when you're looking for something, you suddenly you find it. Everywhere I looked, there was some kind of water, bike, rock, some kind of classification system. So I was grabbing everything I could and essentially making a drafts with, uh, you know, four levels and then writing in some sentences as to what each one meant and then sending it out to our group. I had a, you know, a group of people that was helping me. That was, you know, my colleagues at Parks Canada, plus, you know, friends and colleagues that I'd worked with prior to that. And then we were going back and forth on that for, for quite a while. You know, we, we got up to, I don't know, draft 10 or something like that. Um, but then a really interesting thing happened. So then the guys from Rogers Pass and of our whole group in Parks Canada, they're the most technical by far. Uh, you know, they, they've got the best data. They're the most scientific. They're the, the, the most technical avalanche forecasters we have. And they're uncomfortable with this. They like where it's going, but um, they know they're going to have to classify the terrain in their park with what we make here. And they're not liking these three sentences. And so they're looking at this thinking, well, that's great. But how am I going to apply that to the landscape? I, I need more than that. And so um, those guys developed a pretty basic matrix, uh, you know, with things on the left side of it, like slope angle and, uh, you know, shape, um, avalanche frequency, things like that. And then they broke it across the top, a pretty simple table, but then they started to fill it in with some of the parameters and, and sent it. And, and when I saw that, honestly, I just was like, aha, that's the missing piece. That's what we need because I totally get it. These guys, and I guess me too, we're gonna have to classify the terrain. We can't do it on three sentences. Um, so we need something like this that's technical, um, but we also have to communicate it to the public. So like we actually need two things that speak the same language. You know, they're really doing the same thing, but they're speaking to different audiences. One is technical and it's for avalanche forecasters and one is simple and it's for the general public or someone to interpret. It's pretty easy. So that's kind of how we built the system. And then we just, you know, kept rolling through drafts until eventually we got to the point where we were happy with it. And then talk a little bit about applying this. So this could be applied for a popular ski tour route or an ice climb, um, or it could be applied in more of a zonal scale, right? Like a, more of a spatial scale. Yes, exactly. And so if I was to just be historic for just a second, so we started out just on routes, you know, just simple linear ratings. Um, you know, we had what we did in the beginning. Our plan initially was like, well, we're the government. Our job isn't actually to rate terrain. That's guidebook authors. That was kind of our thinking. Let's get this thing started. Let's publish them. And let's hope that the guidebook authors of the future pick this up. Because that's the best place for this stuff. Because that's where everybody's looking for their information. And this is honestly, this is we're still in book days. This isn't not a lot of digital stuff going on yet. 
so we really developed a list of, I think it was close to 300 of the most popular ski trips in the park. Um, and then we sat down as a group over several weeks and went through each one of them. And because we work in this park, everybody knew those trips and we knew them well. Um, so we had a huge advantage because we knew them. So we were able to kind of classify them. And again, we only had three levels to classify them at. So, you know, it wasn't technical. It wasn't complicated. We didn't use GIS. We used our own knowledge and we basically broke all the trips apart into class one, two or three and then and then published them that way. And then and then one year later, we did the same thing with ice climbs. So that was the first way we did it. And then, of course, it's evolved and grown a lot since then. Um, it wasn't too many years later that uh, Cam Campbell and Brian Gould, uh, to the west of us, they started to do spatial ratings. So drawing polygons on maps, so not just a route, but a whole area and zones. And, uh, and then Avalanche Canada implemented that and they started to build uh, you know, maps for trailheads and uh, online and so on. So then there's a spatial method. So then it kind of grew to having both a method for a linear way, like a specific route or a sort of a zoning method spatially. Um, the zoning method, you know, with time became more technical. We got special slope angle breakdowns. We could start to use, um, you know, bits of software and applying them into Google Earth. So, you know, the complexity of the system and how we apply it has certainly grown and gotten more sophisticated over the years. And then and especially that spatial, um, that spatial mapping is super um, helpful at a trailhead or something. I remember when I, I was up in Revelstoke and went to, I think it's the Fingers off of Mount McPherson or something. I got up to the trailhead and I saw a map of that whole area and, and I could see very clearly where simple, challenging and complex avalanche terrain was. And as somebody that didn't know the area very well, that was incredibly helpful. Um, and so I, I would think that this is a pretty time intensive process, even for people that know these areas really well, right? Like, and there must be some peer review and collaboration with your cohorts to kind of like you, you come up with a rating for an area and then kind of have somebody else look at it and they give their input and come to some consensus. But this takes quite a, quite a bit of time, I would think. Yes, it does. Uh, exactly like you just described. Like I'm just, we just doing one this week, to be honest with you, for some ice climbs in field. And I have uh, five people for peer review on that one. I've heard back from four of them. So I'm just waiting for one more and then we'll sort of reach some consensus on the ratings. So we definitely check it by uh, lots of different people. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, manual ratings take a long time, no matter how you do it. Um, and even the spatial ratings, those also take a long time if you're doing them manually, probably even longer, because then you got to draw them. You, know, you can start with a slope angle filter in Google Earth, but ultimately you have to draw the polygons and determine where those boundaries go. So, yeah, it, it definitely is a bit of a labor intensive. I would say, especially for the spatial, and uh, it's much more labor intensive. If you know the terrain, it's way quicker. Like you can do it a lot faster. If you don't know the terrain, then you've got to seek peer review. You got to find local people. You got to do the trip. You got to find some way to ground truth uh, your work. Sure. Um and so do you have some suggestions as, as my hope is that this is becomes more adopted in the United States? Um, do you have suggestions for organizations, whether it's a public avalanche forecasting center that is hoping to put some terrain classification to their forecast area or a guiding operation that, that wants to just have um, their terrain in their tenure uh, classified. What are some suggestions on how to streamline this process? Well, I would start with a test area. 
I think that's the best case. You know, like if you want to, let's say you're, you want to put out some ratings for a, a popular recreation area. So it's a public rating kind of thing. I would pick something small first, you know, even just one or two trips. And, and you got to kind of decide early how you want to present it to people. Do you want to, do you want to do linear ratings? Like, do you want to do it by the routes? So we're doing ice climbs right now. Those are all, you know, those are route specific. Um, or is it a great big wide open alpine space where you want to do polygons? So I think you have to sort of decide early how you want to communicate it to people. And then I would suggest picking a pretty small area to test it out in. You know, tr try it out a little bit, see how easy it is or hard it is for you. Make sure you've got um, people to help, you know, see if you can find, you know, local people who know the terrain who can review your work and just start small and build it from there. And I have seen it seen it used by uh, several heli ski operators in British Columbia. Have they modified the system slightly, but they've used it similarly. And they, you know, they use it on certain days. They only go to these kind of runs, and on other days, you know, they can go to these kind of runs. So I, I think that it's been helpful for them as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Grant, talk a little bit about where this is has gone. I know this fall uh, you presented at Wysaw. That was a great presentation, by the way. Um, and, and listeners, uh, will put a link in the show notes to that presentation, but, uh, and, and I'm not sure if it's still in draft form, but there's kind of a, a second version that's out and maybe that has to do more with the technical model. Um, but what, what developments have come, come along? Uh, well, yeah, we do have a second version and honestly, I've been working on it and using it now for honestly, I think it's been almost four years of development. It's time, it's time for us to publish this thing. So I'm planning to have that published this summer, certainly by ISSW in the fall, we'll have something there, but um, was just working on this a little bit yesterday. So we hope to get that out soon. We're basically finished preparing it. We, we've been working on it bit by bit. And some of the, the key changes are, I think probably the biggest one is we're going from a three level system. So the original system was class one. Uh, simple class two challenging and class three complex terrain and we're adding uh, two layers onto that so we're introducing class zero which is non-avalanche terrain which has been used in different places before so it's not it's never been officially part of the system but it's sure been used so it needs to be part of the system in fact honestly it's I think it's possibly made the most important rating level from a public perspective I mean there so many people come to our park they're not interested in avalanches they just want to know where they can go and not be near avalanches. So we're introducing class zero and then uh, also introducing class four extreme terrain. And that, um, that's been an interesting one because uh, I've had to really work hard to convince people of the need for that one. Um, I see it because I think I'm in that kind of terrain quite a bit. Um, so, you know, complex terrain is big 35 degree fat rolls, you know, steep, what, what I imagine is classic Canadian heli ski terrain, big glaciers, big avalanche paths, uh, multiple, multiple start zones. Um, but extreme terrain is the next level up. That would be couloirs, um, steep faces with Bergschrons underneath them, slough management country, you know, the places where if you fall down, it's not good, where there's frequent small avalanches. And, and we see, you know, there's, I mean, you you know that, like there's so many people in that kind of terrain these days and we rescue people out of that terrain a lot. Uh, ice climbers are in that kind of terrain. So it's definitely a, a level that I think needs to be addressed. So anyway, we've added that. So it'll now be a five level system running from uh, class zero right up to class four. Mm. And I've heard you speak about some of the challenges with class zero non-avalanche terrain. Like you have to be absolutely certain that there's no chance of avalanches in that terrain, hey? 
You do. And so for that reason, actually, when you when you read through our system, it, it sort of makes that one optional. Um, and, you know, interestingly, uh, that was actually a surprise to me when we started, like going way back to the beginning. Like I tried to get a class zero in there in the beginning, but I couldn't get it past my colleagues. And there was just a, especially, you know, back then the whole idea was new. So that, you know, no doubt that informed this, but there was this real, and there still is a discomfort with saying no, or there'll never be an avalanche there. Um, and I can see that, uh, you, you know, you really have to be, you have to be a hundred percent certain if you're going to call it class zero, but nevertheless, that's our job. And uh, we have to do that sometimes if you're going to put in a camp or a work site or, uh, uh, you know, trails that you're telling people there's zero avalanche risk on, you got to be able to say it. So uh, we're putting it in here. Right. Um, so the, the next speaker in this episode is going to be John Sykes um, and talk a little bit about the work that you've done with him using several human produced AIDS maps in Connaught Creek, comparing that to John's auto eights, uh, system that, that he's utilized. Um, how, how do they align and, and what did you learn from that experience? Well, that was a great experience getting to know John and getting to work on that system with him. Um, our, our job was to sort of, uh, I guess, help to validate the auto eights method. Uh, we did that by, um, doing manual terrain rating and then comparing it against the automated algorithm terrain rating. Um, the way we did the manual rating was there was three of us working completely independently of each other. So it was myself, Cam Campbell from Avalanche Canada and Mark Bender, all three of us in different places, all three of us using slightly different techniques, but doing it on the same terrain. So first thing we did was compare our maps with each other to see how different we were. And then uh, we then we made what we called consensus maps, which were, you know, the best map that the three of us could make manually. And that's what uh, John used to compare against his auto aids. And I, I would say, like, for me, we did that work in the spring of 2020. And if you remember what was going on in the spring of 2020, that was pandemic time. And there was nobody in the mountains anywhere. And I had actually the best time just burning around Bow Summit and going up Jimmy Jr. Bowl and going up Connaught Creek and doing all this mapping work. And there wasn't anybody for miles and miles and it was blue sky. So strangely enough, it was a good uh, pandemic uh, project for me to do. Right. And, and you found pretty good alignment with the algorithm based map and the human, human consensus map. Yeah. I mean, pretty good. Like we, there are obviously differences. You can certainly see it in the human uh, map. And, and and you can tell, you know, who knows the terrain and who's been up at lots and who hasn't. I mean, you can just see that in the mapping. Um, and and there's, there was discrepancies in the beginning. For example, uh, the auto eights didn't initially, I think um, this has helped to develop the auto eights. Initially, auto eights didn't, did not pick up a lot of uh, overhead hazards. So Connaught Creek is a good example. You know, that place is, especially if you're walking up the valley, it's all about overhead hazard. And auto eights is not picking that up originally. And I think that sent John back to search for improvements to that. And now he's corrected it. And it does, a, as far as I can tell, it does a really good job of picking up overhead hazard. But you can see that in those comparative maps. So Grant, you must be pretty proud of this. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people that have had a hand in it as well. Um, what are some implementations that, that you've seen in the last five, five or seven years that you're pretty proud of? And I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's gone global, right? Uh, there's, um, people in Norway and Sweden using it and where else? 
Oh, it seems to be, uh, it's funny where it springs up. I've seen it in Japan. Um, you know, I've seen it in Scandinavia and a few countries. It's, uh, it's in uh, the Pyrenees. They use it a lot in the Pyrenees. They've done some really good work down there. Seen it in a few of the European Alpine countries. It's not not used widely in Switzerland or Austria, but I've seen it hit in the odd spot. Um, it's used in South America in a couple spots. So yeah, I, you know, I get sent things now and then, and I see it. Or sometimes I'll just I recall in Japan skiing by something and seeing a map. Kind of nice to just notice it there. See, so it's kind of got some traction in a few other places. I sure would like to see it get some traction in the United States. I'm like, I'm really glad you're doing this podcast and drawing some attention to it because um, it has been a useful system. And uh, yeah, I'm proud of it. But I also think it's it's a useful system and it helps people um, in so many ways. Like it can help if you're just someone who doesn't even know a lot about backcountry. It helps you to understand, you know, the basics. This place is sort of a higher risk spot than this place. Or even, um, you know, if you're teaching even advanced avalanche courses and you want to teach about avalanche terrain, um, you know, got a really pretty good breakdown there in the technical model where you can help people to understand, you know, slope angle breakouts and what's more serious than, you know, and what's not. I, I find it very useful for also teaching experienced people. Yeah, I, I would add just even be- beginners, right? Like I, I'm teaching in airy courses, like going out with a terrain, some sort of terrain mindset for the day. And, and this helps keep your margins i think and keep you it within those bounds of of what you've planned for the beginning of the day um because we all know when you get out there you're you're tempted by terrain and snow and and uh i think this is a great tool to help keep you on track so um grant i really appreciate you coming by the podcast tonight and taking the time to share some of the history and developments of of eights um and i look forward to getting out and skiing with you someday, hopefully. And I also look forward to seeing this being implemented further um, within further reach within the U.S. So thanks very much. Awesome, Caleb. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, cheers. Next, we'll hear from John Sykes, an avalanche professional and researcher with a focus on snow science, currently pursuing his Ph.D., John develops decision-making tools for backcountry skiers. All right, welcome back to the podcast, John. You're a repeat offender now. Um, John Sykes is an avalanche forecaster with the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center in Girdwood, Alaska. John went to undergraduate school at Alaska Pacific University, where he studied psychology, I believe. Is that right? And then he went on to receive his master's degree in snow science through the Earth Science Department at Montana State University. And as if that wasn't enough, he is working on wrapping up his PhD through the Avalanche Research Program at Simon Fraser University here in the next year. John has worked as a mountain guide and a ski guide, as well as an avalanche educator. You can find out more about John's background and his work with his master's degree research by checking out episode 317, where I interviewed a a full episode with John there. So check that out to find out a little bit more. Welcome, John. Welcome back, John. What have you been up to lately? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Just trying to keep up with toddlers and infants and and avalanche conditions. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Just just trying to make the balancing act happen. I'm sure sure you're crushing it, John. (laughs) Thank Um, you. Well, we've got John on the show today to talk a little bit about the research and work he's done 
done with um, some auto eights work. We we talked about that with Grant a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about that. Tell tell us about your past and current research and how you're utilizing the auto eights and what is auto eights. Yeah, so auto eights is essentially a GIS and remote sensing approach to creating automated avalanche terrain exposure scale maps. And it's an alternative to what's been done previously, which have been human-generated maps, either rating routes, like linear routes, or rating a whole zone using polygons, so kind of breaking down the features into different polygons. So the idea was initially not my idea. This uh, One of my colleagues named Hovard Larsen, or actually he changed his name to Hovard Toft after he got married, but he works for the Norwegian Avalanche Forecast Center. And he initially developed the model, the first version, when he was working with Jordi Hendricks at Montana State University. And then uh, Hovard and myself and Andrew Schauer, the uh, lead forecaster for Chugach Avalanche Center, is have been doing most of the development since then over the last three or four years or so. And so, yeah, it's kind of built on the early versions, which were based on you know fairly simple models, and we've we've uh, identified areas where it's not working that well and tried to add some more nuance and complexity to those parts of the model so we can capture the terrain as realistically as possible and kind of capture the the eights scale and make our ratings more consistent with human ratings as much as we can so yeah that's kind of where it got started um yeah and my part i guess has been really focused on taking the existing uh, automated AIDS model and then testing it against uh, human-generated AIDS map. Working with Pascal Hagley and at Simon Fraser University in Canada, we have really good connections with the Canadian avalanche industry, like Parks Canada and Avalanche Canada. So we kind of leverage those relationships to work with Grant and uh, other AIDS mappers from Avalanche Canada to, uh, yeah, do this big validation effort to make sure the automated model was within the ballpark of, of what the human generated maps look like. Right. So essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, but you start with a map and, and then add certain layers to that, that GIS software and what sort of inputs go into the, the first part of that automated aids. Yeah. So the inputs, there's only two basic inputs. One is called a digital elevation model, which is essentially just like a digital topo map. Um, and it breaks a mountain area down into pixels. So just like a picture from your, your smartphone, um, the pixel size determines kind of the resolution of that map. And uh, so that's one input, the digital elevation model. The other one is some kind of forest layer that gives us an approximation of the forest density so that we can adjust the way that avalanches release and run out in forested terrain versus open terrain. And then, so, so those are the two inputs. And then the basic steps of the model, the first thing we do is we predict um, avalanche start zones. So what areas are likely to be release areas? And then we kind of set a threshold of like, so basically the start zone map covers the, the entire region that we're trying to analyze. And it gives it a probability from zero to one of whether or not it's a start zone. So then we kind of put a threshold on that and say, okay, anything above 0.15, we're going to say that's a start zone. And we take all those start zone pixels and feed them into a runout simulation software called FlowPy, which was developed by uh, a research group based out of Innsbruck, Austria, led by JT Fisher. 
Um, and it's a, yeah, it's an avalanche simulation model. It's, it's a little different than like Rams, which is kind of the one that a lot of people have heard of. It doesn't work. It doesn't actually take like a depth and a mass of snow and then simulate the flow. And you can't get out calculations like impact pressure. And Rams is kind of like the most state-of-the-art, but also most processing intensive method of simulating avalanches. And there's similar methods that other um, places have developed. But FlowPy is kind of a simplified version of that where we basically give it a, an alpha angle, a runout, maximum runout angle and the start zones. And then it tries to realistically predict how avalanches would flow through the terrain. So it can do things like flowing slightly uphill or, or kind of like determining the amount of spreading that it would happen in a goalie feature. Those are the kind of things that it does pretty well. Um, and th so those are the two basic first steps, the start zones, the, the runout mapping. And then the last part is to put it all together into an eights classification. So we use kind of, we, we use different outputs from each one of those steps to create the eights rating. And the main ones are the slope angle, um, whether it's a start zone or not, um, the forest density, the runout zone. And then we also, from the runout model, we get a general sense of like, what's the size potential of avalanche that a given path could create. So if it's going to be creating D4s or D2s, we can kind of account for that a little bit in the, in the overhead hazard component of the model. So I know that you did some collaboration with Parks Canada and Avalanche Canada, and Grant and I talked about that a little bit, um, where you took your auto-8s modeling uh, for Connaught Creek and then kind of compared it to some, th I think, three or four different human-generated 8s maps. And... Uh, what did you learn from that process? How how well did those align? Yeah, I really liked your interview with Grant on it. I thought one of the biggest takeaways for me, I was surprised by, and the human AIDS mappers were not surprised by, is actually how different the human maps were. They all captured the features kind of generally the same, but there was more variance between the human maps than I would have thought, um, which was enlightening. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it's quite a complicated thing to like break down the train and then rate it using the scale because there's just so many different combinations of sizes of polygons and, and so much subjectivity that goes into it. But that, that was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, and yeah, it definitely took some work. Like when we first got the, so, so yeah, they created three separate maps individually. And then they came together and created what we're calling a consensus map or an eights benchmark map. So it's essentially the best that three experts could produce working together. And that's what we compared the automated method to. And what I did was I created a system where we could we could systematically adjust the parameters of the model based on the, the optimal alignment. So essentially we're comparing it, we're using the human map as kind of like the gold standard, this is the truth. And then we're tweaking the automated method to get as close as we can. And uh, yeah, so it was kind of a, a uh, drawn out process and a lot of tweaking and it's it's a little bit of a I I have a little bit of a perfectionist streak in me so there's a lot of like going back into the model and making small changes and then realizing it has no impact <laughs> and so there's a lot of cycles like that but uh, overall I was pretty happy with what it turned out and some of the big things that I learned from that experience is that um, dealing with forested terrain is a big challenge both because forests like pre-canned forest data sets are 
this in British Columbia where we did this work, they're more oriented towards forestry. And so the accuracy is not that great, like around tree line elevations where it's really critical to account for forests. So that was one big learning that came out of that experience. And then um, the other big one was that we compared in Connaught Creek, we compared how uh, accurate the model was using different resolutions of these digital elevation models. So all the way from roughly 30 meters, a, a type of model that's available for free worldwide, all the way down to like a one meter LIDAR, which is kind of like the state of the art, what you'd use for like really high precision mapping. And we found that actually the low resolution and the high resolution accuracy was about the same. So it was a bit of a head scratcher at first because you'd think, well, the higher resolution should do a way better job of this mapping. But I think what it came down to is that the eight scale itself is, is kind of a simplified and broad scale. So you don't have to be like super precise in estimating slope angles down to the degree in order to put the train into these broader bins. And, and what it means is that we can run auto eights for really large mountainous regions using these lower resolution data sets pretty efficiently. So like the computer processing time is way lower using a lower resolution input data set. So um, it's for practical purposes, it's a benefit because we could potentially run entire mountain ranges instead of just being able to run, you know, traditionally eights has mostly just been for high use areas where it's, uh, the, the funding is kind of justified to pay for the manual mapping. And so if we could do it for areas, entire forecast regions, or even better would be areas that don't have forecasts. So you have literally no information. So it's like, well, at least you have some terrain, some kind of solid, consistent terrain information to help make your decisions on. And so how much, how much human tweaking after the model is run do you see necessary? Like if, if you run it in a totally new area, say, as you as you made an example of where people don't recreate very often, like you have pretty high confidence in in the fact that the model would come up with what a human would. I don't think the model will come up with what a human would, but I think the model is. I think we're getting to the point where the model is representing the features. Think kind of thinking about the features in the same way as a human does, and the the fact that it's perfectly consistent across space is really nice because you can kind of adjust yourself to how it's going to rate certain types of terrain features. Like for example, if you have an area where it's likely to misclassify would be like an area with really tall old growth trees where the canopies are all interlaced. So it looks like super dense forest, but underneath it's got big spaces. So you could have avalanches in the train. So the model would struggle with that but it's gonna struggle with that in a very consistent way across all terrains. So in the long run, hopefully we could come up with, with a solution for that problem by integrating some different data sets, but it also makes it easier to go in and tweak it for, for people to go in and tweak the output to make it more accurate because you can kind of hone in on these areas that tend to be different from what a human would do. But yeah, I think it kind of, in, in the ideal world, we would be able to have human maps everywhere you know local there's there's no replacing local avalanche knowledge and expertise so that's definitely not the goal of the model but the reality is that these things are expensive to make and they take a lot of time and so if we can get an automated method to be most of the way there then it's probably giving uh giving valuable information even if it's not exactly what a human map might look like that's that's kind of my perspective sure 
And so I believe, is it Onyx that's kind of adopting this and some of their mapping layers in their app? Yeah. Yeah. I've been working with Onyx a bunch. We started working together last August and um, we, the thing that they've been helping with a lot, which is super valuable is to work with local avalanche centers to get feedback on the model. So we did this validation in Canada, in Connaught Creek and Bow Summit. So uh, in British Columbia and Alberta, but different snow climates and different geographies, you know, the, the parameters of the model change, like the, the distribution of slope angles for avalanche release change slightly depending on where you are. And so the ability generating the actual model is pretty straightforward once you get the hang of it it's the checking it against local knowledge and making sure that it's vetted before handing it out to the public that i think is really the tricky part and that's where onyx has been contributing hugely and making connections with forecast centers and we've been working so far uh we've done a bunch of work with crested butte avalanche center um zach guy there and uh and andy sovic who i think you're going to interview also for this podcast and uh in the galton national forest and we've got a bunch of other ones that are kind of in the queue those are the two that we started with this winter but um yeah i mean they're they're uh hoping to run it for a lot of areas so i'm i'm excited to see where they go with it yeah it's exciting to hear that, that uh the u.s is kind of catching up a little bit in the adoption of of using eights. I think it's a very good tool for education and a great tool for the backcountry recreationists, you know? I agree, but I do think there's, you know, there's definitely pushback from, from people in the community, I guess, like any kind of change, but it's, I think people are a little hesitant about adopting another scale that is not perfect, you know, like any classification scale, like even the avalanche danger scale is not perfect. And so I think the idea of like investing in a new scale that maybe isn't going to match all conditions perfectly meets some resistance from people in the avalanche community. But for the most part, I've gotten positive feedback on it. And yeah, I, I think, I think if it's interpreted well, it could it could really benefit a bunch of different parts of the avalanche community from education and kind of using just the framework of eights as a tool to to educate all the way up to, you know, like high resolution mapping and that kind of stuff that Onyx is doing. Mm. So tell us your thoughts about using eights as part of kind of condition specific decision making tools. Yeah, I think that's kind of an exciting direction that it could go in the future where you could have, you know, you could essentially combine kind of these high resolution terrain ratings with the avalanche forecast where you'd have danger problems, avalanche size, that kind of thing. And and you could make much more detailed suggestions to people about what's appropriate for the day than what I think has been possible previously. And it's a little bit, it's nothing new, you know, like the evaluator in Canada was actually developed by my supervisor, Pascal Hagley, and I think Ian McCammon. And they, it essentially uses an ACE rating and a danger scale and kind of tells you how, how cautious you should be. But I think the fact that we could now have ACE ratings everywhere might make those type of tools much more specific. Like, okay, it's not just look for simple train. It's like, look for simple train. And here's a bunch of simple train in the region that, you, that you're trying to go. So it kind of makes the, the leap from, forcing people to 
make the connection themselves between where are they actually going to go and what's the danger. And it gives them a little more guidance and more of a handrail for that, which I think is exciting. Instead of talking about your travel advice and talking about specific train features, you can point the user to specific routes or ski runs. Eh? Yeah. And I think, yeah, even if you, even if you're not breaking it out into like kind of slope scale, like specific routes, you can use the eights map as a way to just generalize terrain, you know, and it's, I don't think it will be perfect or as maybe as seamless as I'm making it sound, but I just think there's opportunity to be explored there. And the more of these, the more of the products are available, I think the more um, we'll know about, you know, what, the, what are the best applications and how do people actually apply them and understand them when they're looking at it on a map. Mm-hmm. So Turnigan Pass in, in your home and and um, up here outside of Girdwood is a pretty high use area. And you and others are working on creating the AIDS map for Turnigan, Turnigan Pass. So where, where does that stand and what is the end state of that going to look like? Uh, we have a, a version done now and that we've been kind of giving out to a limited crew of people to get feedback on. Um, Alaska Guide Collective has been using it this winter. They they integrate eights with their level one courses. And so, um, and I, I'm friends with those guys. So we, I've been getting some feedback from them, which has been mostly positive, but it's really, um, I, I think getting, it's the critical feedback is what we want. You know, we want to know where it's not working, not just like the rosy, like, oh, this looks great. So, so that's kind of the challenge of rolling out in new areas is like, okay, we got to dig deep, see where it's really not working. And then there's a lot of tweaking that can be done. It's just, it takes reliable feedback and then kind of iterations of the model to figure out what's working. But I think, I mean, I, I use it uh, when I'm going out on ski tours for the forest service, just as a way to, especially like the conditions that we have now where it's like, Oh yeah, it's not that likely, but you could trigger a D four avalanche. So it's like, Oh, suddenly thinking about these far runouts and overhead hazard takes on a whole new meaning and pretty real consequences. And so having a tool that kind of gives you some objective information along those lines, I find it to be pretty helpful. Do you have any advice for other, other avalanche centers that are looking to do that or, you know, guiding operations that want to, put ratings to to their operating zones well i know onyx is really motivated to work with avalanche centers to get um get layers generated and and do this kind of feedback loop that we've been talking about a bunch so i think in the short term that's probably the best path they they fund a lot of avalanche centers and are really motivated to make this a part of their product I think for me in the long run, I would really like to see it available free somehow to users. And and partly I think Onyx's solution to that might be um, hosting a map on a on the Avalanche Center's website if they've collaborated on it, but then obviously having it more detailed and with the GPS capabilities and whatever on their on their app. There, but that's a paid subscription. So for me, the whole the whole kind of premise behind developing this model is that it's all open source. So we're hoping to publish it in the next six months or so. And at that point, anyone could run it. The, the, the actual programs that are required to run it are all open source. So anyone could do it. And it's more about like the fine tuning and the local, we call it localization to different snow climates and whatnot. That's, that's the, the secret sauce, I guess. 
And so who are you the host of that or like who hosts that, that, um, open source software? Yeah, I think Hovard, my colleague will probably it. So it's hosted on this website called Git repo, where it's a, a lot of programming, uh, development is done on there. And our paper will outline basically how it works and the different kind of suggested applications. So like a, a general workflow of if you want to apply it, here's the steps to go through. Here are some of the kind of first things that we usually use to tweak it for different areas like slope angle distribution or forest or whatever. So kind of like giving some some guidance on how, how you could apply it in your area. I will say in the current state, it does require a, a kind of fairly high level of technical capabilities because the program is written in Python and runs on a command line. So it's not going to be like an ArcGIS kind of super slick thing because it's just a couple of us kind of working on it. So it does require a little bit of technical background, but our hope is that we can over time make tools to make it more and more accessible to uh, to the community at large. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for all the work that you've done on this, John. And um, it seems like this is a, a great tool for the community. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. I hope uh, hopefully it'll continue to improve and we can find all kinds of good ways to apply it for the U.S. Avalanche community. All right. Well, thanks for swinging by today. Appreciate you. Thanks, Caleb. Bye. Finally, we have Andy Sovic, the founder and CEO of Beacon Guidebooks and publishing company that supports aspiring authors. All right. Welcome to the show, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful and I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Andy Sovic is the founder and publisher, and I believe you call yourself the traffic controller from Beacon Guidebooks. Um, Andy, tell us a little bit about your background, how you started Beacon Guidebooks, why you started Beacon Guidebooks, and just a little more about what they are and who they are for. Sure. So I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, and became pretty obsessed with backcountry skiing as a teenager, getting into it, uh, luckily with a mentor who was a, an avalanche instructor and a mountain guide who needed a ski partner. And so at uh, 17, 18 years old, I was fortunate enough to learn the ropes with him and get way into it. I uh, moved on to college, went to undergrad at Fort Lewis College in Durango and skied the San Juans quite obsessively there for four years. Shortly after that, uh, moved to Crested Butte, Colorado with my now wife, Gail. And we've been in the Gunnison Valley. That's that's where Crested Butte is uh, ever since. That was uh, 2005. So been living here. Uh, my career uh, when I wasn't skiing, I was working and uh, I'm mainly a carpenter. I grew up as a carpenter. And uh, when I moved to the valley, we, I was building homes for anyone and everyone. Got way into straw clay construction and timber frame with a Japanese style timber framing. I was way into that and then uh, skiing as much as I possibly could. And I was taking photos throughout the mountains as I was skiing, basically just taking photos of adjacent slopes, places I wanted to go ski, places I had gone and skied and maybe got a little confused and wanted to take a picture so I could study it at home. Uh, learning through avalanche classes, I 
I learned that you should study your terrain, know it, to make a run list. And so I was basically just doing that with a with a point and shoot camera and started compiling all those images and friends would uh, ask to see them. And I started sharing them and realized that uh, a ski atlas, much like the ones that inspired me, like Jackson Hole, Ski Atlas, and some European ski guides out there, um, I decided that I should make one for the Crested Butte area. And that's where we started this whole Beacon Guidebooks business. So it was really a side hustle, a side passion project that was never really, at the time when I started it, I didn't actually think it would become a full-on publishing company. In fact, I had no idea what a publishing company was when I started this, and nor would I call myself a publisher. So it's been a, a slow evolution, and uh, I think it was four years ago now in 2018 that I stopped construction full-time and, and decided to dedicate uh, my full-time work to making books and maps and apps for backcountry skiing. And we also make an avalanche search and rescue guide that's uh, meant to go out in the field with uh, ski patrol, search and rescue, and avalanche professionals, or anybody who wants to hone up on all the things uh, to be a good rescue partner in those scenarios. And this year we made a children's book called Squeak Goes Backcountry Skiing. So we dabble a little bit outside of the fringes of guidebooks, but our our main thing is these spiral bound ski atlases and then topo maps that sync with them. And so how many areas do you have the the ski atlas and maps for? Right now we have, let me make sure I get this right, 14 locations that we have covered. And that's through most of those have, are on their second or third editions. We're working on about six more right now for 2023 and we have uh, a few we have two extra books for locations that don't have maps and then we have two extra maps for locations that don't have books uh, that sounds confusing but what I mean is that every book we have let's say for example Snoqualmie Pass outside of Seattle Washington there's a, a guidebook that we call a ski atlas spiral bound a bunch of aerial photos and pertinent information for the backcountry traveler and then we make a topo map, waterproof, foldable topo map that has all the ski lines, same names, same lines, and a similar organization that's meant to kind of be synced with it. The map is really meant to go out with you in the field, be a you know a decision-making tool, and of course a, a backup safety tool for when you get lost and don't, and your phone doesn't work. <laughs> and then tell us a little bit about the app. Yeah, we actually work with two different apps. One is called Rackup. R-A-K-K-U-P, and the other is called Onyx Backcountry. And they're two different models, and they both work very well. That's why we have chosen to work with those two. Rackup is uh, not a membership model. It is basically you download the app for free, and that accesses their bookshelf. And Rackup publishes already published books uh, and makes sure to share the profit with the author. So it works much like uh, ebook or or a paper book where once the customer buys a book um, some of it goes to rack up the distributor and some of it goes to the author and on the flip side we have all the same information copied and pasted from our books into the apps uh, with onyx backcountry and they are you know the the membership based service where you download and buy a membership annual membership and you get all the routes that we have for all of our zones um, in one interface so 
we like those two. We, we like both of those models a lot, and they're both wonderful companies to work with. They're run by people who are super passionate about the same things we're passionate about. Nice. And so uh, one of the reasons that I have you on the show today is to talk about your incorporation of the Avalanche Train Exposure Scale into your products. Um, just tell us a little bit about when you first heard about eights, like who'd you hear it from and, and tell, spin the story there. Yeah, it's, we'll, we'll get super geeky with it here during this episode. And, and I, I can't wait because <laughs> I get pretty excited about it all. So we were, I, I was, as I was learning that I was a publisher and I was working with Matt Seanwald, our author for all of our Washington products. Uh, he's a mountain guide, uh, veteran mountain guide, ski patroller, who's been around all the Cascades for a long time now. And he's got all of these, all of this stuff in his head, all these routes and everything. We were trying to categorize the terrain that we were working with. We were looking at this slope over here and trying to describe it for avalanche hazard. And then we were comparing it with that slope over there and trying to talk about that with avalanche hazard. And we were taking elements like aspect and elevation, slope angle, uh, terrain traps. And we were trying to come up with a way to describe it in a standard way. And we were never really getting there. I felt like I was trying to reinvent the wheel. I, I was just kind of struggling with it. Um, like you heard in my, my personal story, I didn't come from an avalanche professional background. I came from a carpentry background. I'm not an educator and I'm not an avalanche professional. So I didn't have some of the tools that I should have even had to be doing this. And so Matt came back from a conference. I can't quite remember which conference it was, but an avalanche conference like ISSW and said, you know, this guy Grant Statham up in Canada gave a talk about how they've been categorizing avalanche terrain up in Canada. And it's called ATES, A-T-E-S. And here it is. Let me, you know, he sent me articles about it and sent me the website from uh, Parks Canada. And I got into it and I looked at it and these light bulbs went off and a bright light came up over my head and uh, the choir started singing hallelujah. And I just, I, I, I loved it. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard about it before. I was so excited to get into it and I got it right away and spoke with Grant uh, about it and making sure that it was okay with him if we use it. And I think like he has said earlier in this episode, he, he's been hoping that guidebook authors use this and, and kind of apply it with a by the route method to their books and to maps and things like that. So as soon as he gave us the go ahead and the green light, we jumped right into it and got pretty excited. Um, so that was, I think, 2016 or 2017 that we started using it. We only had a few books published at the time. I was still building houses for a living and doing this on the side. But that's when we really got into it. And every single product since then has incorporated eights. Anything that didn't uh, incorporate eights is now out of print. And everything that we do sell and make it, uh, uses it. And it really is. It's not just a tool within our books. It's kind of the... the the big tool, the, the big thing that holds them all together and that uh, really helps us with our mission of describing, categorizing, and classifying terrain as it relates to avalanche hazard. Speak a little bit about why you feel like it, it adds value to, you know, both the recreationist and, and perhaps the avalanche professional. 
Yeah, so there have been so many changes to backcountry skiing and backcountry travel in the last decade or two decades. And really the last five years, we've seen this big acceleration of so many things in the backcountry. There's technology, uh, population, of course, has, has exploded in a lot of areas. Climate has changed quite a bit and science has changed quite a bit. Education, um, the way guides guide, the way avalanche control professionals control. And I think with when it comes to public perception and educating people and uh, you know, avalanche classes and things like that, the science has really grown on two of the three legs that are the avalanche puzzle. That is uh, snowpack and weather. These two dynamic things, um, you know, when it comes to weather forecasting and weather understanding, huge advancements have come along. I mean, just the technology alone with satellites and with uh, Doppler and, and what have you. And forecasters being just paid and and allowed to to just go wild with uh with really getting detailed with forecasts and then we have snowpack uh the ability to describe and understand and dissect snowpack I and mean, you go to avalanche conferences and the things that scientists students are doing out there all over the world is just amazing and people's ability to interpret that and teach that and really explain it on a simple level to students uh, who are just taking their level one course or um, or even professionals who are really trying to learn how to bring people safely in and out of the backcountry. The third leg, terrain, the third big piece of the puzzle, I think has kind of lagged. This is my personal opinion, but I think it's lagged behind as far as advancements in uh, technology, understanding, and teaching. Why, I'm not exactly certain, but... Um, I think it's a little bit behind. And I think one of the reasons is because talking about terrain, talking about where to go and where not to go is a pretty spooky thing. Um, it, it really puts the rubber to the road of saying, do go here, don't go there. Talking about it can be really uh, problematic, a lot of liability there. And uh, of course, sharing routes, <laughs> even as a guidebook author or, and publisher, I know very well that talking about it and telling people where to go and where not to go uh, can be even vilified and and uh, discouraged, and I understand that, and I'm guilty of of sometimes keeping things a secret too and not talking about it when I could have talked about it. The downside is that there's some really important information that we haven't gotten across to uh, people who are going into the backcountry. So describing that terrain has been lagging, and Bates is a fantastic way to describe terrain without really talking about like where to go and where not to go. It's really just saying, what kind of slope is this? What kind of zone is this? You know, let's let's describe it. Let's take all these different variables that make up avalanche terrain. Let's dissect them and put it into an easy to understand um, description. It makes it a bit more objective, right? Like it, there's a certain degree of subjectivity when talking about what what one person thinks is a mellow slope versus another person. And so to have the ability to either through auto eights or human based eights maps, um, you know, to be able to really look at it objectively and, and have a map in your hand that's been ground truthed and peer reviewed. Um, it takes a lot of that subjectivity out of it. Right. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Caleb. I think that's a really important piece to to touch on. We we talk about the human factor and biases a lot in this in, in your podcast, I'm sure. 
the human factor gets thrown out a lot. And with terrain, it's a big deal. What what I call a, a mellow slope when we're saying like, oh, where should we go skiing tomorrow? You know, like, like if you go ski, you know, Bald Mountain, that's a super mellow slope. And you say like, geez, I think that's a frequent flyer. And we might have an argument about it um, with a properly rated uh, terrain system. You can just say it's we already know that it's challenging zone level two challenging. We don't have to argue about whether or not it's sketchy and what sketchy means. It's also a subjective term. Uh, we have a definition for it. And that's so many of the things that we deal with. And that's why we talk about um, all the human factors and all the biases to make sure that um, we know to avoid them. On top of that, we could even we, we have we now have a tool to be the squeaky wheel or be the person who, who raises the red flag or raises their hand in a scenario where we say like, hey, you know, if today's forecast was, you know, A, then we shouldn't be skiing in this terrain because this is complex terrain. So you, you have some, some safeguards and some, some defense to work with when you're trying to uh, question the group instead of just uh, saying like, I think I don't like this slope. So uh, I think that really does provide a tool not only for professionals, but for new people in the backcountry, for group scenarios, removing that bias, applying some objective names and numbers. Andy, talk a little bit about the process that you've gone through when applying the eights to certain routes within your guidebooks and ski atlases. What did it look like when you first started doing it, and what does it look like now? Yeah, when like I said, when we started and the light bulb went off and I really started applying it, uh, it, was, it was some of the first products, and it was a bit of a messy process, and we we tried to take all the variables that are in the eights descriptive model. It's a rubric and apply them to all of our zones. And it's really hard to uh, decide what a zone is. Where does a zone start and stop and become another zone? If you're looking at a bowl or a face or a series of shoots, are those shoots in one zone or two zones? Do you separate them? And so a lot of those questions were asked and uh, dealt with in a in a messy way, but we, we keep moving forward with it. And I, I'm, I'm proud to say we've refined our system quite a bit and I have good guidelines to give to my authors now. But what Grant and the uh, and the Parks Canada folks gave us was this descriptive model, and it's a rubric. It's basically rows and columns uh, dealing with the the different elements of terrain as it relates to avalanche hazards. So we have things like slope angle. Everybody knows how slope angle affects avalanche terrain. Forest density uh, that does affect um, avalanche likelihood. Slope shape, so we, you know, convexity versus concavity, ridges, gullies, things like that go into the shapes. Terrain traps, frequency and magnitude, so that's basically history of avalanches where we have good data. That's uh, the size and how often they slide. Starting zones, size and density, these are like potential release areas, is what uh, we call them as well. And then we apply the kind of the human side of it, which is the interaction with avalanche paths. That's someone crossing it, going through it, underneath it, over it. And then we'd also talk about route options. You take all of those elements and you rate them in their basically degree of severity. And at the bottom of this big rubric and this, this work board, you come up with a rating. 
So for example, if you have a 35 degree slope, uh, mostly 35, and uh, it's mostly planar, it doesn't have big con convexities going down it. And you get size one or you know D D1, D2 avalanches, but almost never a D3. And let's say there's some isolated starting zones, but not any not, not overlapping massive starting zones. And let's say that there are ways for a skier to avoid some of the most severe parts of that slope by going down, let's say, a ridge line or a, a more mellow shoulder on the on the side of the slope. Then we'd come out with a level two challenging rating. And that's a lot of work to do. And it's 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 a heavy lift to ask a skier to do that as they're planning their route tomorrow. <laughs> to to really try to dissect all of this stuff. I, I encourage people to. I mean get on Google Earth or get your ski atlas out if it's covered and and do your own rating system. But it's kind of a heavy lift. It's cumbersome and it's I don't think it's that realistic to expect people to do that. So that's why we try to uh, communicate this through auto weights and through our books. And all the user sees with a ski atlas or with a map is uh, green, blue, or black levels of, of difficulty. Green is simple, blue is challenging, and three is complex. And that really, and, and those have simple definitions to really try to remember like what exactly is simple and how is it different than challenging. You can go over those if you want to, but uh, they're easy to find both on the Parks Canada website and uh, our website, beaconguidebooks.com, has a whole education page dedicated to trying to describe this as well as possible. And there's some really cool tools out there, mostly from Parks Canada and Avalanche Canada, for understanding this. If you want to give yourself some lessons and get ready for the next ski season or, uh, or just get ready for the next ski trip, get on there and do some of these uh, practices and exercises for, for understanding your terrain better. So that's what we do with every single zone that we cover and as by zone i usually mean uh, a place that someone would tour in in a given day so a zone will usually have one or two approaches and will have anywhere between one and ten descents a zone shares common characteristics like uh, an aspect and an elevation and a trailhead and then in a region is more like something like a, a the whole pass area that you're dealing with or um, or, you know, around a town or something like that. So a much larger area zone is really something that we, that we look at and we try to give a, each zone a rating. And then within that zone, we zoom in even more and try to give each descent a rating as well. And that can come in really handy when you say like this zone is challenging level two. However, I see a green descent in this zone, which means uh, it, it kind of follows that level two definition, which is it, it has avalanche danger. You have hazards above you and below you, terrain traps, maybe some avalanche paths and starting zones. However, there are options to reduce your hazard. And that's what that green simple line is all about. So that's the main reason that we do try to zoom in on every zone and and uh, offer some some plan B routes, as the as you might say. Always good to have options. Um, Andy, have you received some feedback from your users and customers about utilizing eights within your products? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I have, and I, and I always wish I got more feedback. Uh, most of the feedback is positive. 
uh, I, I will say one good story is I, as I get really excited about AIDS, you probably hear me start talking faster and faster about it. And I just hope that I don't lose people when I'm explaining it. But I was giving a presentation on a, our Crested Butte guidebook release that was a, a year or two ago. And I explained the new book and how we're incorporating AIDS. And I really tried to give some AIDS education. And I said, you know, AIDS is this wonderful tool we can use to describe, you know, the, the hazard of the terrain and how it relates to you. And if you look at your avalanche forecast, you can use AIDS to and so on and so on. And I probably did like a 40 minute presentation on the guidebook and the AIDS scale and how it relates. And at the end of the presentation, I said, anyone have any questions? And this one person raised their hand in the audience and said, yeah, um, what are, what are you talking about with this eights thing? What is that? <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> Did, what have you guys been, you, you poor people, I've just like subjected you to a bunch of time where I didn't even explain it well. So maybe I'm not the best at explaining it, but uh, what I am proud to say is that we do a survey every year in the spring for our products. We, we send out a survey to our whole email list, anyone who's bought one of our books. And one of the questions was in this year's survey, what is your level of understanding with eights and do you use it in uh, your daily planning process? And the vast majority of our customers said, I do understand eights and I do use it in my planning process. Uh, more than 80% of our customers said that. So that tells me that the books and maps are starting to describe it quite well. We're doing a lot of things like communicating uh, that the green, blue, black is not a difficulty rating like you see at resorts. I think that's one of the most confusing things right off the bat when people are trying to understand this system is, oh, so if it's green, it means it's easy. And I try to remind people we don't talk about easy or hard in our guidebooks because we all know that a mellow slope when it's got breakable crust on it is not easy. <laughs> so conditions are are too variable to really try to put into a guidebook and rate. So green does not mean easy and black does not mean hard. We also know that a very steep slope in six inches of pow with a nice soft base is a pretty easy scheme for a, for a moderate skier. So uh, we really try to separate that away right now. All over our books and intro pages and on the guts pages, we have you know language like this is not the difficulty rating. This is a terrain rating. Learn more about eights on page six or on our website. So more and more people, I think, are grabbing onto it. And I think this year we'll see a lot of professionals start using it in their daily uh, job. And then I think a lot of more recreationists will be able to use it and communicate it and know what they're talking about. I know what you're talking about when you're saying moderate slope. And let's keep let's make sure we don't go into complex terrain, dude, guys. And everyone knows what that means. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the goal. And I think it'll happen within the next few years. Yeah, I agree. And I'm excited for it. And I think it's great that Beacon Guidebooks has kind of been uh, one of the leaders within the United States of bringing this to the public eye. So uh, great job with that. Um, and I'm excited that you guys are incorporating that into your products. Um, where can people find out more about Beacon Guidebooks, your ski atlases and uh, maps and apps? Our website is certainly the best place to go. You can usually find the, the books and maps in any retail store, any outdoor ski shop uh, near uh, one of the zones that we cover. 
mostly Colorado and Washington, but this year we'll be uh, releasing products in California and Montana, New Mexico, and Utah. So keep your eyes out for us there. Social media, we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, and I think that's, that's, and of course, our headquarters in Gunnison, Colorado. Cool. So Andy, what, what are you excited about for the future, both with Beacon Guidebooks and AIDS use amongst public and professionals? Yeah, one thing I'm really looking forward to this year is that uh, we'll see John Sykes and Grant Statham give presentations at ISSW this fall, uh, releasing the next version of AIDS, which uh, I've been anxiously awaiting. I'm one of the, the people who just bugs him on a monthly basis saying, like, what's the next, when's the next version coming out? Can we start using it? Because I really want to use it. Um, they're like, like they say, they're changing it from a three level rating to a five level rating, zero through four. And that really gets us excited at Beacon because mainly because of that zero to one split right now, simple terrain means you might be in avalanche terrain, like, and you might not be. You might be in really, you know, really heavily forested flat terrain away from any potential runout zones. Or you might be traveling in avalanche terrain, but easily avoided avalanche paths. What the, the new split does is it splits that zero, no avalanche terrain from avalanche terrain. So now we can say, if you're not anywhere near avalanche terrain, you'll know it. You're in level zero. And if you're in avalanche terrain you'll know it because you're in simple if you're in simple terrain that means you are you do need to turn on your receptors you do need to start putting that situational awareness into play because if you were in zero we would say it so that's the big difference there that's that's what we're really, really excited about on the other end it's also i think helpful for people who are traveling in extreme terrain to know that they are in extreme terrain there is there is no option for reducing your hazard uh, that'll really help too, because now people in complex terrain know that maybe there might be um, limited options to reduce their exposure. So separating those things out is really important. It does make the scale a little bit more difficult to communicate, but uh, I think I think the the skiers out there and snowboarders can can adapt. So that's one thing that I'm really excited about. And the next is is the work that John has been doing with Onyx and that we've been doing with Onyx. We've been Comparing their auto weights layers to our eights ratings in Crested Butte, since we have really comprehensively covered Crested Butte manually, which is extremely labor intensive. They've done the, the heavy lifting with auto weights and we get to compare and contrast those and we'll be seeing that released in the Onyx app this year. And what that really means for me is <laughs> it means more work, but I'm really excited about that because we can zoom in further now. Like they get to blanket our whole region with auto weights. And now we get to zoom in on areas and really talk about those route options that I was discussing earlier, where you can uh, increase your level of risk or uh, decrease your level of exposure. So those are the things that we're really excited about these next few years. Well, that sounds great. Thanks, Andy, for coming on the show today. And uh, telling us a little bit about how you've incorporated AIDS into your products at Beacon Guidebooks. I use these guidebooks uh, when I'm going to new areas, and I find them to be extremely helpful 
um, and such a valuable resource for trip planning. So thanks for everything you all are doing there. Um, I do have to say, like when I first saw them come out, I was like, I was like, oh man, like all of these zones are just going to get swarmed with more and more people. And that's kind of happening in the backcountry is a busier place than it used to be. Um, but I think because of these products, it's probably becoming, uh, well, you can't really say that it's a more safe place, but I think people are more informed about what they're taking on, um, before they head out into the backcountry uh, because of what you guys are doing. So great job with that. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say, you know, many years ago, I'd say, I, I hope we can stop this conversation about whether there should or should not be guidebooks out there, mainly because it's a futile conversation. There's been guidebooks and apps and maps published uh, for a very long time now, and people sharing information is not a new thing. So I've always said, I hope we can transcend this conversation about from should there or shouldn't be, should there be or shouldn't there be, to what can we do better to describe where we're going and um, reduce and prevent some of these accidents that are happening that keep happening, uh, they're preventable deaths, preventable accidents, and there's things we can do about it. So that's that's I, I think it's important for us all in the avalanche industry to realize the effect we're having on the population. I think we all have to own up a little bit to it. and got to check ourselves and say, are we doing the right thing? And what can we do better to at least help people stay safe? Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, thanks, Andy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Caleb. What an insightful conversation with Grant Statham, John Sykes, and Andy Sobick. We truly appreciate their valuable contributions to the Avalanche community. Today's music features Day Trips, Mission Ready, That's a Beat, by the talented Ketza, which can be found at ketza.uk. Our show artwork is done by the incredible Mike T, which can be found at MikeT.com. T, spelled like the drink, not the shirt. And of course, this episode was produced by yours truly, Cameron Griffin. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and recommending us to your friends on their preferred podcast platforms. You can also follow us on social media at The Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram, and feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at The Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, always keep your head on a swivel for moving snow.